بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله this is now seven module seven point two so module seven is basically family law, what we call fiqh al-usra. And for our purposes, we are looking at family law through the prism of marriage, which is 7.1, conflict and divorce, 7.2, the rights of children, 7.3, the rights of parents, 7.4, and the family ties, 7.5. So we spent a few sessions covering 7.1 on marriage. 7.2 will be covered in its entirety tonight. And the rights of children and parents and family ties, maybe one class, maybe two. It's unclear. So this will end seven, module seven, and then we go to module eight, which is financial transactions. And then we go into the other aspects of halal and haram. So this module 7.2 is going to be the most unromantic module of all because it is going to address a human reality that is not pleasant but because it's a human reality and it involves the lives and honor of human beings we need to know what are the rulings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concerning these things. And so we talk about conflict and divorce tonight, inshallah. And this is an old meme I put up in the beginning of 7.1. I said we're discussing certain basic things and not detailed things. So this class tonight for 7.2 doesn't intend to go into every single possible detail. It's to give us enough fardain knowledge so that we have the basics for conflict resolution, we know how it works, and we know the basics for divorce and idda, so that if, God forbid, that ever happens, we stay within the halal, and we give rights to those who have rights, and we don't violate those rights. So, as I just said, the sharia that was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his beloved Prophet sallallahu is for human beings. It is not for angels. That means it guides our ethics and our behavior and it's revealed for all human possibilities. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So we're going to talk about essentially three things tonight. Number one is the marital discord, shiqaq. Number two is divorce. And number three, idda, which is related to divorce. Now, we're not going to talk about how to actually do conflict resolution. That's its own field. We just want to look at the basics here. So shiqaq is discussed before divorce in the books of fiqh. And usually they frame it through looking at four possibilities, four manners in which discord may arise. So you have marital conflict where it's bad treatment or harm coming from the husband to the wife where he's the perpetrator and she's the victim. That's scenario number one. 
Case two of shiqaq is when it's the wife who is treating the husband badly and he's the victim. Number three is when both of them are harming each other, which is a lot more common than you think. And scenario four is when it's unclear, meaning both sides are claiming that the other is harming them and there's no immediate evidence to support either of their claims. So it's ambiguous and requires more investigation. So out of all four, out of, out of these four, which one do you think most imams in North America deal with when they deal with marital issues? I would say, I, I, yeah, I would say it's an even mix between one and four. Even mix between one and four. Because sometimes you get a case where it seems like it's one or two. And then when you go and investigate, you realize that, oh, it's actually number four. The person who first came to you comes with their claim. And they're, of course, innocent. They haven't done anything. And then when you start to investigate, you realize actually there's competing claims here and there's more than meets the eye. This is why it's very important that for imams especially that you don't just jump to conclusions, right? So these are the possible scenarios of shiqaq. Now, what I'm going to describe to you tonight is really an ideal situation where you have a qadi, where you have an Islamic society where the sharia is in force and there are qudat appointed to judge in these matters. They have been vested with authority to rule, to adjudicate in matters of marital discord, divorce, and the like. In this society where we don't have that kind of central government that is based on Islamic law, we don't have qudat, we, we have only the option of bodies of imams or community elders who know how to do this coming together and working collectively as if they are a qadi. But that requires some training and it requires organization it requires uh, systems and processes and, and, and most importantly, transparency in how it's done. So some of this is an ideal situation. Other stuff is a little more practical. Now, we want to explore shiqaq from the husband and the wife and when it's mutual and what that looks like. So the fuqaha say that shiqaq or discord from the husband's side takes the form of, of course, domestic violence, right? physical violence against the wife. Also cursing and verbal abuse. What is seen as cursing and verbal abuse in the, the custom of the people. You know, the lang we know the language that may be used and considered abusive language. Likewise, denying her conjugal rights. So denying her her rights to intimacy, that is a right. And if he denies her that, he is in a state of discord with her. And lastly, if he denies any of her other rights, whether it's financial maintenance uh, or anything like that. So it covers the gamut of issues that arise that are the husband's fault, things he's doing against the wife. Now there's a few scenarios here. So let's say the wife is facing discord. There's a couple of scenarios we're going to look at. So look at scenario number one. Let's say the wife is suffering from one or more of these sources of discord. Could be physical abuse, could be verbal abuse, could be whatever. But she doesn't want to get divorced. She wants to work through the issue so that the harm ends, but she doesn't want to get divorced. What she can do in an Islamic society when there's sharia in force, 
she can go and raise that matter to the Qadi and she can establish that she is the victim of this through either evidence uh, or the acknowledgement of the husband or witnesses or even it being common knowledge. Common knowledge is, for example, in a, in a small little neighborhood, people know other people's business and sometimes you know that there's conflict between person A and person B and maybe you hear them fighting and one of them screaming and throwing things and that becomes common knowledge, the talk of the town, so to speak. So basically she is establishing this so that the Qadi can prevent him from future harm. So she doesn't want the divorce, but she wants this harm to be stopped. So the Qadi would basically follow these steps. He's going to counsel this man, will advise him and warn him, and he'll do it in whatever way he sees fit based on his personality and what he thinks is most conducive to success. That means he could be very harsh with him or he could be soft with him depending on the circumstances. It's left to his discretion. If soft words or even harsh words and counsel and advice don't work, then the Qadi can go to the second stage, which is to tell the wife that she should forsake the bed. So this is now her denying him sexual access, forsaking the bed, withdrawing the conjugal rights for a period of time until he calms down and stops the discord coming from his side. If she does that and that's not working, then the Qadi has the authority to threaten that man with discretionary punishments. A discretionary punishment is basically left up to the Qadi to decide. That could be slapping him around, it could be uh, beating him or even giving him jail time, right? It's up to him if it's established that he's abusing her and she doesn't want to be separated from him. But the condition for this is that the Qadi has to be reasonably certain it's going to work. If he's sure, based on prior experience, that it's not going to work, then he can only advise him because she doesn't want to get divorced. So what, is, what else is he going to do, right? She doesn't want to get divorced. So he's not going to rule that they're separated and annul the marriage. So he advises him and he does the best he can, right? And she can withdraw from the bed and hopefully things get resolved, right? Now, the other scenario is she's facing abuse or harm and she wants to get out of the marriage. What are the options for her? If this is uh, an actual case of harm and she wants to get divorced, in an ideal situation, she raises that to the Qadi and again establishes it via evidence or the husband's iqrar, he acknowledges that it happened, uh, or it's common knowledge and there's witnesses. She can then use that as a grounds to ask for a firaq, a separation. And the Qadi can grant that. And that has the force of law even if he doesn't like it. That's the reality. Even if he doesn't like it, he can grant that once the evidence is established that there is harm. That's his decision, right? Now, we now come to the second side of this. So now it's not the woman who's being harmed by the husband, it's the husband uh, facing discord from the wife. Now, there's a particular word we use here in Sharia to describe this, and the word is nushuz. And this is a word mentioned in the Quran. The English translation of nushuz is recalcitrance, a big $10 word that basically means disobedience to the husband and, or disobedience to Allah and he's telling her to stop disobeying Allah and she refuses to listen to him, right? 
So the, wom- the woman who is recalcitrant, Nashes, we don't say Nashiza, we say Nashes for her because it's only for the feminine. Nashes, she is Nashes if she refuses direct or indirect sexual access. If she leaves the home without his permission, going where he does not want her to go. Or if he locks him, if she locks him out of the house. They mentioned this too. Or if she betrays him by being unchaste through fornication or other forms of indecency. Or betrays him financially by using his money unlawfully, meaning she takes more than uh, what he would customarily allow her to take and use. So there's different forms of that and there's different degrees of that. But let's say it's, let's say he, she's emptying out his bank account or something, you know, and she doesn't, she knows that she can't do that. Uh, and lastly, if she neglects tahara, purification, and salat, and fasting, or any of the other obligations of Allah Ta'ala, and he tells her to obey Allah and she's refusing to listen, then she is nashes. Now, notice that the list here is a bit longer, or it mentions things that are not mentioned with respect to the man as the source of discord. And that's because the man uh, doesn't need permission to leave the home, right? Uh, and there's a few differences here because of the difference in the power dynamics, but this is the Nash's description. Now, the remedies here, now, because we know that the, the divorce is in the hand of the man. So, would he take her to the Qadi? There are some circumstances where he could, but primarily addressing the shiqaq is going to come from him through certain steps that are outlined in the Qur'an. And Allah Ta'ala mentions these in Surah An-Nisa, mentioning the three steps of addressing uh, discord. So if the woman is nashis, she fits those qualities. The verse in Surah An-Nisa mentions that one should first exhort that wife. Exhort means wild, you know. This is to say things that will soften her heart, that will remind her of Allah Ta'ala and His rewards for obedience, and also warn against the consequences of sin and disobedience. So the wild can be gentle. It is whatever is most conducive to the situation. It could be gentle words, reminding her softly, it could even be somewhat harsh words. It's all about determining what's the best thing for that person in that situation, given their history. And the fuqaha mentioned in this context that even, let's say the husband is pretty sure that his own words are going to fall on deaf ears because there's just too much drama between them, right? And no one's listening. They say that in this case, he is allowed to bring an imam or an elder or some respected figure in the community to play his role and to advise her and exhort her, encourage her to obedience. So that may work for some people where she's not going to listen to him because there's some conflict there, but she would listen to some third party who is seen as more neutral and respected by both. So it's an option. Now, if that fails, words are not working, advice does not work, then he would go to step two. So you're only going to step two and to step three when the previous step isn't working. And for each of these steps, when you escalate to step two or to step three, you're only escalating when you are reasonably certain that that next step is going to work. If you're reasonably certain that the next step isn't going to work, you don't do it. 
because it's for a purpose. And if the purpose will not be met by that means, then you don't take that means. It's the same thing with disciplining children, right? Not the same in, the, in this context of relationships, but the same in terms of uh, using means. We use means for uh, getting people to do what's right if we're sure those means are going to work, right? So the second step is hajr, uh, right? Hajr al-madajir, which is forsaking the bed. And we mentioned that term in the previous slide for the woman. She has that option too if there's shiqaq that she establishes to the qadi. So forsaking the bed means that he is denying her the conjugal rights and he's not sleeping with her in the same bed. So the fuqaha mentioned that when this happens, it, you know, it could be a day. It could be two days or three days and that's all that's needed to basically have everyone cool down, come to their senses and realize that they need to do what's right. But if it's taking longer, they say that the, the, a one month is kind of the ideal in a really difficult and seemingly intractable situation. But it should not and cannot go longer than four months. So there's limits to this. And again, it goes back to the maslaha, the, whether it's going to actually affect a change. If it doesn't benefit and the person is reasonably certain that the next step would be effective, they would go to ne the next step, which is, of course, very controversial in this day and age. You know, but we have, to, we, we have to recognize what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and the context in which it is said and the parameters for its application. And we don't shy away from that. Allah ta'ala mentions it, uh, which is light physical discipline. Well, obviously, that's controversial. But if steps one and two do not work, and he is reasonably certain that step three would work, he would be entitled to do that in that uh, dire situation. However, this word darb should not be uh, understood like we typically think of the word. And you get images of boxers and you know, hard hitting and things like that. That is not what it means. The darb here is darbun ghayru mubarrah. It's a light, uh, physical discipline defined as non-injurious that leaves no mark and which avoids the face right so this could be a light tap a light whatever that basically kind of shakes the person out of that heedlessness and disobedience to show that it's a serious matter but again this is only allowed if there's reasonable certainty that it will bring her back to obedience and if he's reasonably certain it will not and if he's reasonably certain that it's actually going to make things a lot worse because of the nature of the time and the society and the resources out there that could make his life a living hell if he was to do that, then obviously he's not going to do this. And chances are, if he's going that far, the marriage is on shaky ground already. And there should be other recourses to address these problems. So this is our fiqh. Right. This is not a prescriptive thing that we give people. It is a description of the options available in the right circumstances. And those circumstances, if they're not found in a time or a place, and it's, uh, we're reasonably certain it leads to a greater harm to the relationship or to the man or to the whole family, then uh, that's skipped. It's just not done because the objective is not just to do that thing. The objective is to, uh, to come to, back to obedience and back to what is right. So we mention it because that's what Allah describes. 
We don't shy away from that, but we give all the necessary caveats and conditions. Um, so we talked about when the conflict has come from the husband, when it's coming from the wife. Now we come to number three and four, which is basically that mutual conflict. And this is quite common, where both of them are claiming to be victims. Now, we have a couple of scenarios here. The husband can, can be complaining that he is a victim, that she is uh, rebellious or doing different things, violating his rights and so on. And the wife can make the same claim, and neither of them can, can prove it. You know, they just show up to the imam's office and say, this is what's happening. There's no records of that happening. Can't prove it, right? And sometimes the wife would raise this to a qadi, and she can't prove it. So let's look at it from the perspective of the qadi, what he would do. Now, the fuqaha say that if the woman comes with claims of harm to the qadi, but she cannot prove it, then his job is to basically appoint locals in her community who are righteous, who are upright, whose shahada testimony is accepted, and have them go and sit with both husband and wife and conduct their own investigation, right? They do their own investigation. They go and talk to the wife separately, the husband separately. They analyze the proof that they have. And then they present their findings to the qadi, right? And the qadi is going to, once he ascertains what's going on, he will then default to those steps we mentioned earlier, which is to, you know, either exhortation or he threatens this person with some form of discretionary punishment. You know, he takes whatever steps he has to take on the aggressing party. Um, but if the complaints continue and no one can really find out who's, who's at fault here, they both seem like they're at fault and they're both being kind of miserable, then the qadi will then send a judge from the wife's family and a judge from the, the husband's family. And this is mentioned in the Qur'an, right? Allah Ta'ala mentions that in these cases of mutual discord, you are to send a hakam from the husband's side and a hakam, a judge from the wife's side. Now, Allah Ta'ala does not make mistakes. He does not use words in the wrong place. He did not say representatives of the wife and representatives of the husband. He didn't say agents of the wife or agents of the husband. He said hakam, a judge from the husband's side and a hakam judge from the wife's side. That means that they are actually fulfilling the role of a judge. So that means their decision after investigating and coming together, their decision is binding. So in terms of the fiqh details, this is a lot of this stuff is kind of irrelevant to us without al-qadi, but they say that if the husband and the wife consent to one person being that judge, that's fine too. So if they want to, and we discussed this in the section about the marriage contracts, if they want to put in the contract who they would like to be playing that role should a conflict arise, they can do so. So let's say they agree, we'll appoint, you know, let's say they're in Pittsburgh, you know, Imam Fulan will be the hakam in this case. Should there be discord between us, then we can't solve it. If that happens, it's in the contract, they would go to that imam, he would investigate, and he's playing the role of the qadi in this sense. So the, that's a possibility. Not, but the default is that the qadi is going to appoint the two judges, one from each side. 
But what are they actually trying to do? Allah Ta'ala in this verse says, send a hakam from the husband's side and a, ha- a hakam from the wife's side so that they can strive for islah. How do you translate islah? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, right? That's not what it means here though. Because islah can be reconciliation. But the actual meaning of islah, according to the fuqaha in this context, is to find, for the, judge, the judges to investigate, to find what is aslah, which means what is best. Because reconciliation means you keep the marriage together. Allah is not saying appoint a judge from the man's side and from the woman's side so that they can come together to do whatever they can to keep them together. That's not what Allah is saying. Allah is saying that they are appointed so that they can do what is aslah in this case. Sometimes what is aslah is for them to remain together. Sometimes what is aslah is for them to part ways. It all depends on the case. That's the role of these two judges, one coming from each side. And as we said, they're literal judges. And they're not witnesses. They're not representatives for the husband and the wife respectively. So if the two judges from the husband's side and the wife's side, if the two both agree that this is not going to work and the husband and wife should be separated, this becomes a separation. It takes effect, shar'an. And if they declare that, that separation becomes one pronouncement of talaq, or one tatriq, one uh, imposed divorce. So, if they don't agree, well, <laughs> things get complicated. The qadi has to get involved, and we're kind of back to step one. But these are the ideals when there's conflict. And, you know, we, we go over this stuff, and we hope, and we ask Allah that it's never something that we have to resort to in our own lives. But you can see here that these are meant to preserve people's rights and to ensure that they're not engaged in the haram with respect to how they treat someone else. And so that if there's conflict, it can be resolved in a manner that is pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. And after this, we come to the actual meat and potatoes of the topic, which is the actual divorce, the talaq. And we know that there's two types of divorce. There's talaq and there's khula. We'll talk about both of them. We start with talaq, of course. And we begin with the words of the Prophet ﷺ who says that there is no permissible thing that is abghad Allah, that's more detested in the sight of Allah than divorce. So what is the hukum shar'i for divorce? What's the legal ruling on divorce? Is it wajib? Is it haram? Is it mubah? Is it makruh? Is it, is it mustahab? What is it? What do you say? What say you all? Hmm? Well, this is kind of a trick question because there is no one straight answer for all cases. If we look at divorce just as a ruling in itself without any particular application to a couple, then the fuqaha say that it is permissible, but khilaf awla. Khilaf awla, it's outside of those, those five legal rulings. It's a sixth thing that's kind of stands outside of them, which means that it's, it's permitted, but it is against what is best. So it's not saying it's makru, 
But if you were to put a category between mubah and, and, and lightly makruh, it would be there hovering. Yes, but it doesn't mean it's a legal judgment of, of being makru, right? It's of the permissible things, the most detested of them is divorce. But note it says, abghadul halal, right? The things that are most detested of what is halal is divorce. So the default is that it's khilaf awla, but permissible, right? So if a person does it, they're not engaged in a makru. They're doing something that's essentially mubah, but it's disliked, not as a legal judgment, but it's against what is best because of the other interests involved. However, there are for some people for whom divorce is wajib, and others for whom it would be makru, right? So it all depends, it's a case-by-case basis. Now, it's permissible, according to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and Ijma' consensus. And as we mentioned, divorce law is quite detailed, and we just want to cover the basics here, so that if Allah forbid any marriage struggles and deteriorates to the point where that has to become the, the choice made, then people know how to maintain themselves in a halal way, so that they are not disobeying Allah in that process. Because, you know, as you all know, people get very nasty when they get divorced. This is very common. And if you know the sharia and you know what's followed on you in matters of divorce and you commit yourself to uphold them, inshallah, you avoid most of that nastiness by doing things the right way. Uh, I mean, you have the character aspects and how you deal with the conflict too. But let's talk about this. Now, we're going to talk about two types of divorce. The first is called At-Talaq Sunni. This doesn't mean there's a Talaq Shi'i, right? This means Sunni, divorce here means a Talaq according to the Sunnah. So, if you have a Talaq according to the Sunnah, it implies that there is a divorce that is Talaq Bid'i, that is a Bid'ah, a blameworthy innovation. So, we're going to talk about these two types. What is the sunnah divorce and what is the bid'i blameworthy innovation divorce? Sunnah divorce doesn't mean like, oh, it's a sunnah to get divorced. That's not what we mean here. We mean that if a person has to get divorced, what are the parameters of divorce within the sunnah taught to us by Rasulullah So number one is that for the divorce to be based on the sunnah, it has to be a single pronouncement of divorce. So the person getting a divorce would say, in Arabic or their language, right, they would say something like, I divorce you, right, or you're divorced. They're not going to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you a million times, I divorce you from here to kingdom come and forevermore and for all eternity, or, you know, they don't do this, right? That's bidri, as we'll get to. A single pronouncement. That's number one. And when they utter that talaq, it is taking place when the wife is tahira, when she's pure from menstruation and nifas, postnatal bleeding. And it's not after intercourse, after she's purified herself from either. I want to repeat that. Okay? So a woman, say she's uh, during her monthly cycle, her monthly period. It ends, she purifies herself with the ghusl, 
The husband has not had intercourse with her. That is the period to, to utter the divorce, according to the sunnah. It's not to utter the divorce after intercourse, after that purification, right? So there's this window at between the ending of the period and purification and before any intercourse takes place after it. That's the window. If it takes place after intercourse, after she's purified herself, it's against the sunnah, but does it take effect? Absolutely, it takes effect. Even the bid'i divorce takes effect. So we're describing the ideal way it's to be done if it has to be done, but even if it's done according to the bad way, it still takes effect. It's, it still counts as a divorce. It's just for the bid'i one, there's, there's really bad consequences if you take it too far. So that's number two. Uh, the third is that he's not uttering the divorce during her idda, her waiting period from a previous divorce pronouncement in which he could take her back. So how many times can a man divorce his wife and take her back? Two. Two. marratan. Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, divorce is twice. I thought there's three divorce pronouncements. There are, but you can't take her back after the third. So it's a bid'i, blameworthy, innovative type of divorce to pronounce divorce on her uh, during her idda from a previous uh, pronouncement in which you could take her back. So let's say there's, there's two. The person said to her, Anti Taliq, you're divorced. And she's in her idda now, and it's been two weeks. He didn't take her back. And two weeks later, he, he gets mad at her because she's still at home. He's like, you're divorced. He says it a second time. But she's still in her idda. So this is blameworthy. But does that second one count? It counts. That's the important thing to know. That no matter whether it's sunnah or bid'ah in the way the divorce is conducted, they count. They count. So this is the sunnah divorce in contrast to the bid'ah divorce. Because there's a possibility of taking her back, right? So it's, she's still the wife in the sense that there's this waiting period. Well, we'll get to, get to that with the idda, inshallah. That's coming up. Uh, but even if, you know, even if she was away, you know, if she was with her parents, if he just called her on the phone and said, during her idda, I divorce you again, that would be blameworthy. Yeah. So the bid'i divorce is, it takes on different forms. And they take effect. So although it's improper, they still count as a divorce. So if a man divorces the wife during her period, or after she gave birth and she's experiencing nifas, the postnatal bleeding, or after intercourse, post-tahara, or if he utters the triple divorce, if he says to her in one sitting, you are divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced, or I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. If he says that three times in one sitting, it counts as how many? It counts as three. This is the position of all of the four madahib. And there's only a few individuals in our history who, who, who went against that and took an anomalous view that was not accepted. And this is the position. It's blameworthy, but those three pronouncements count as three. And this person has made their life uh, very, very difficult. Because what happens often is the person is, is they're just very angry. And they'll say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, because they're so angry. And then they calm down and think, okay, wait a minute. 
I don't, I, you know, I actually want to get back with my wife. I'm, it's okay, we'll work things out. And then they realize, wait a minute, this is irrevocable. I can't take her back until she goes through the idda, gets married to someone else, consummates that marriage, gets divorced, goes through the idda again, and then, only then, with a new contract, a new mahar and everything, we get remarried. That's a huge problem. This is why it's important to learn these things. I, I cannot even count on my hands how many times I've spoken to people who've come and said, ah, oh, you know, I said I divorced you three times. What do I do? And she's, and she's pregnant. I've heard that one too. And it goes back to what I've said before. You know, 80% of the problems people like imams deal with are problems from people who just are not following Islam properly, right? If they just knew better and had more control of their emotions, they would not have those problems. Now, the qadi is to order the husband to take his wife back if he pronounced divorce during her monthly cycle or during her nifas. Of course, if that's the first or the second, right? If it's the third, then it's a done deal. It still takes effect. And this is important to note. So we talk about the types, the sunnah, divorce, the bid'ah type divorce. But there's other types with respect to when you could take them back or not take them back and things like this. So you have the raj'i divorce where the husband can take the wife back. And this is basically where the man takes the ex-wife back during her idda, or he reproposes to her after her idda with a new mahar, a new contract, and so on. So there's really two scenarios there. They have a fight. He says, I divorce you. And three weeks later, she's still in her idda. They make up, and he decides to take her back. Does he need a new contract then? No. He, he doesn't even need witnesses for that. That's fine. And the taking back and just be saying, I take you back, or you know, giving her a hug or a kiss and just saying, let's make up. And then it's, she's back. She was still on the idda, and he took her back during that time. That's fine. If the idda had gone through to completion, then if he wants to take her back, he's entitled to, he could do that, but they would have to do a new contract and a new mahar because the idda period elapsed, right? So that's possible, right? And that's the basic raj'i kind of divorce. You then have the kind of divorce where there isn't a take back. And this is where uh, a man cannot take back the ex-wife during her idda, but can only remarry her through a new proposal after the idda, if she accepts it. So number one, in case number one, it could be two weeks later, she's still in the idda and he takes her back. In case two, two weeks later, if he wants to take her back, he can't. He has to wait until the idda period elapses and then do a new contract. That's what it means by no taking back, meaning before the idda period is over. And that would be if she accepts it. And this would be in the case of her being given a khula, where basically she's seeking the divorce due to some dissatisfaction and agrees to return the mahar or the equivalent. Or if there is a tafriq where the qadi or the authority separates the two because he wasn't fulfilling her rights. So if it's those two cases, so let's say they had a problem, 
he was in the wrong, the Qadi separates the two, that counts as a single pronouncement of tafriq. She goes through the idda, it's only after the idda that he can take her back, right? Or if she asks for the khula, which is a kind of divorce, the moment he grants her that, it's done deal. The, once he grants her the khula, it's a done deal. She would have to go through the idda period entirely and have a new contract and new mahr. He can't take her back before the idda period, unlike the first case. The take back will still count through the life of the marriage, right? Like even if you take her back, like one divorce now, one divorce. That one, right? It's like baseball. That's, that's a crude analogy, but it's like baseball. Three strikes and you're out. So you, that's one strike. So you're not out of the game. You're still at the at the batter's plate. But how many strikes do you have left? You got two left, right? And hopefully there's no foul balls or anything like that. So, yeah. Then you have the irrevocable divorce. And that's where there's no take back. This is when the ex-husband can neither take her back during the idda, number one, nor can he remarry her with a new contract, number two, unless she marries another man and consummates that marriage and gets divorced from him and goes through that idda. When would that happen? If he did the three pronouncements of divorce, whether they were three successively according to the sunnah. So, you know, one, and then he took her back, and then another, and then he took her back, and then the third, now that's a done deal. She would have to go through this whole process before they could remarry if they decided to do it. Or uh, if it was the bid'ah divorce in three, in three of three divorces in one sitting, she would have to go through that whole process for them to get married. And I mean, there's other details here too. There's other aspects. There's even a fourth category that's uh, basically, yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> Just complicated issues. Uh, these are the most common. Now, after talking about the types of divorce, you have a question? Yes. Yes, the, the Prophet Sallallahu cursed the muhallil, the, 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 the one who uh, facilitates that kind of marriage and consummates it for the... It, the explicit purpose of making her halal for her previous husband, this is unlawful. It has to be a marriage that is genuine and it just doesn't work out. And this is actually not that uncommon. You'd be surprised. Uh, I know of a couple of cases where that's happened, you know. Oftentimes it was seemingly irreconcilable differences. People were at their wits end and there were too many divorce pronouncements made and it became the third. And they tried to move on. And uh, they, the wife remarries someone later and it doesn't work out. And then usually it's when the, other, the, the ex-husband is still kind of in the life, you know, could be because they have children. And they have po some positive memories and, you know, one thing leads to the other and they think, you know, let's try this again, right? It happens. But you're right, if it's intentionally done just to make it lawful to go back, this is playing games with the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the muhallil and the one who facilitates that. 
the Prophet says that person is cursed. And the la'na indicates that it's a major sin. Right? Any, any mentioning of a divine curse indicates that that thing is a kabira from the kabair. Now, we, we then come to the issue of the words that affect divorce. Why is this important? Because we have to be mindful of what we say, right? When we get to the section in the Fard'ayn about the maharim al-lisan, the prohibitions of the tongue, we're going to learn about a lot of the things that are haram to say, to use, to say with our tongues. We have to be mindful of what we say and the fact that our words have impact. The fuqaha say that when it comes to divorce, there are two types, meaning the expressions used for divorce, there's two types. The alfaz that are the, the, the terms or words that are sariha, they are explicit, plain words. And then the ones that are uh, kinaya, they're elusive words. So plain words are, you are divorced, I divorce you. Right, it's very clear. The elusive words are words that can mean divorce, but they might not always mean divorce. Right, words like, you are separated from me, or go back to your family, or you are no longer lawful for me, or our marriage is over, or this marriage is done, you know, these kinds of phrases. Why do we make this distinction between the phrases that are plain and clear and those that are elusive? It's because the plain words count if they're said, even if the, one, the person's joking. If a person says to the wife, uh, ha ha ha, anti taliq, he thinks it's a joke, it's not a joke, that counts as a divorce, right? Walaw bil hazl, right? Even if it's joking, it takes effect. But if the other kinds of words are used that are elusive, they only count as a divorce if he intends a divorce by saying them. Because they, muhtamil, it carries the possibility of being an expression of divorce or being something else. If he says, this marriage is over, he could mean that this marriage is literally over and that becomes a pronouncement of divorce. But he could also say this marriage is over and he's just expressing his worry and fear or what he thinks is the inevitable conclusion of a big, long argument. You know, I think that this marriage is going to be over. He's not actually saying, I divorce you. So that goes back to the intention of the person saying it, if, if it's a kinaya. And if the person is doubting uh, their intention when they use that word, like say they said, this marriage is over, when they were angry in the middle of an argument, and as they calmed down, they said, Oh my God, I just said this marriage is over. Is, did, I just, did I just pronounce divorce? It, I didn't say I divorce you, but you know, they're in doubt about their intention at the moment. If they have that doubt, they count it as not a divorce. Right? We default to it not taking effect. Only if you say the clear phrase in whatever language of, that has the word divorce, I divorce you, you are divorced, and so on, does it take effect? whether one is serious or joking. If the one uses elusive words, then no, only if they have the intention. So that means that the plain words, number one, take effect with or without intention. So this would exclude hikaya or naql, you know, if a person's reading a book or like a teacher in class, you know, if, her, if the teacher is saying the words, the phrase, anti-taliq, 
he's not saying to his wife, Anti Talik, he's transmitting. You know, the one who's transmitting the words is not saying them, right? It's when the person means to say the phrase, whether they're joking or not. So when we say intention for number one is not required, we don't mean, we don't mean they uh, read it in a book or they repeat it after uh, what they heard in a class and, or, or something like that. We mean they, they intended to say the words, they just didn't intend that it was serious. So you can intend to say something to pers- a person, but in, not intend to be taken seriously. And that still takes effect as a divorce. So this is why a person should be very careful with that word. It shouldn't even be brought up in a household if it can be avoided. Right? That should be, you know, that's the red button, you know, last resort stuff. You know, you should exhaust all possible resources and means of reconciliation before that word comes out. All right. Um, what time do we have? Okay. Um, the next one is the khula. So the khula is a second kind of divorce. What's the difference? Now, talaq is pronounced by the man. The woman doesn't say anta talaq, right? It comes from the man. So what option does the woman have? Well, the woman has two options. Uh, in the case of harm, right, she has the option of khula or irreconcilable differences. Or she has the option of tafriq, you know, to going to the qadi. But khula is defined as the end of the marriage when the husband receives a material offering from his wife and using the pronouncement of khula or talaq or when the husband divorces slash releases because khula means to let go, to release by accepting her request for separation in exchange for a compensation she offered him. The difference is, this is coming from her, and it's in return. Basically, she's returning the mahar or its uh, customary value to him in return for being released from the bonds of marriage. Right? This is mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, in the verse you see here. It's not permitted for you husbands to take back what you have given them unless they both fear that they cannot uphold the limits of Allah, the hudud of Allah. So if you all feared that they cannot keep the limits of Allah, then there is no fault upon them with what she ransoms herself with. Fi maftadat bi. And that ransom means the mahar, you know, giving it back to be released from the marriage. This is the khula' and we have a very famous hadith that describes this process. And it's basically the, the, the foundation or basis by which we understand khula. And it's the hadith of Ibn Abbas regarding the wife of Thabit ibn Qais radiallahu an. She came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu and she said, Ya Rasulullah, Thabit ibn Qais, I do not fault him for his character or, or his religiosity, but I hate to be ungrateful after Islam. What is she complaining about here? She is not complaining about things that are under his control. Notice this. She's saying, I do not fault him for his character or his religiosity. Is your character under your control? Yes. Is your religiosity, your commitment under your control? Yes. What's not under your control could be other things like, you know, your appearance, right? It was beyond your control for the most part. So the Prophet ﷺ said to her, 
would you return to him his garden? That was the mahr. She said, yes. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, accept the garden and divorce her a single divorce. This is the basis for the khula' and she's basically giving the dowry back in order to be divorced even if this is against his preference but he relinquishes that because he realizes things aren't going to work out in the long run. Um, <laughs> the issue is sometimes the husbands and the wives are having conflict and Maybe even there's abuse and she seeks the talaq, he won't give the talaq. She seeks the khula, he won't grant the khula either. And she is now mu'allaqa. She's in this suspended animation, neither enjoying the benefits of a healthy marriage or the freedom that comes with being divorced and single. She's just in this stuck space where she can't get out. In which case, the third option should be explored, getting the divorce annulled. Now, we have to understand here that the law is meant to guide our, our interactions with people. It's not meant to be a tool to uh, get advantages in the world, playing games with the deen of Allah. So the brother asked the question about the muhallil, the one who would uh, marry a woman and consummate it just to make her halal for the, the ex-husband. Likewise, it would be haram for the husband to purposely make the wife's life difficult with the hope that she'll reach a breaking point and try to you know, bribe him by giving the mahar back just to get out of the marriage. So he, he won't give her divorce. He won't say you're divorced. He'll just escalate tensions and create such discord that she relinquishes the mahar just to get out of the situation. Right? If he intentionally does that, this is blameworthy. And generally, it's, this, this is haram. Like divorce, the khula should be a last resort as well. And other means should be pursued especially if her initial reasons for asking to get out are things that are under his control. Note the hadith of Thabit bin Qais, his wife. She wasn't faulting him for his character or for his deen. It was other stuff, you know, like things that he couldn't really change about himself. And she didn't want to uh, disobey Allah Ta'ala by being in this marriage that she felt was unbearable for her. Uh, she didn't feel she could endure it. She wanted to maintain and do what's right. So if it's something that he's un, he has under control, he can modify his behavior, his practice of deen, his money management and whatnot, then she should try to work with him on that and they should get some help to work on these things. It's the last result when there's these irreconcilable differences. Now, when it comes to giving the, mon the money back, the dowry or whatever, it doesn't have to be the exact dowry because we know what if it was something material that's been used up. You can't give something back like that. Uh, so it's either the amount or the customary value, whatever that may be according to the orf, the custom of the people. It could also be an object. Or she could even offer something else completely different that he accepts. So let's say the mahar was $10,000 and she says, oh, here's my used car has a blue market value of ten thousand dollars or even less or more take the car you know theoretically one could do that and here's where we get to this kind of sticking point with applying these things in north america where there's no quality to enforce things so let's say things are not working out and she seeks this he's not giving it to her but she has grounds and then the 
the imams or the, the body of imams uh, have to adjudicate, as it were, for her situation. Uh, as it says here in the slide, when there's no qadi who can execute that, with or without the husband's agreement, there's a general practice that's observed by most imams and most imam bodies in North America, and that is not to get involved with signing off on khulas and separations until after the husband and wife have done that through the civil court. Think about that, because our marriages here are different from the marriages back home. You go to Morocco, you go to Pakistan, the marriage contract is one thing. You know, it's in the court system, and that's the Islamic contract too. They're one and the same. Here, however, you have the civil marriage, the marriage certificate issued by the state or the county. Then you have the one that is done verbally or in writing by the masjid, the imam or whoever. So you have two different things here. So it's almost like you have two systems working in tandem. Now, the general advice given by a lot of different fatwa bodies in North America is that imams don't grant these things uh, unless they have done that themselves by getting divorced through the civil court. Why? Think about this. Think about a husband and a wife who are in conflict. They live in a Muslim country and there's a qadi. The woman goes and she pleads her case and she has her proof and her reasons and he's being stubborn. The qadi decides he's going to grant the divorce and separate them. The guy, the husband, may or may not show up to the court. If he shows up to the court, there's armed guards, there's bailiffs, there's people there. And that person, the, the husband, will probably not ever see the qadi again, you know, They're in the building and that's it. And this person has guards and there's a whole system in place. But imagine if the imam is just granting divorces left and right like this, serving as the qadi, and they haven't got divorced in the civil courts. The imam who's granting the divorces in these cases is, may also be the same imam who's teaching that husband's children and who is giving the khutbah that that husband is listening to every single Friday and that he's praying behind and seeing him day in and day out. You see the discrepancy here. You see the, the problem that can arise. Um, you know, maybe that imam is also fundraising, right? You think the husband's going to be paying money now, right? So if it's done through the court, uh, the civil court beforehand, it makes it easier for the imams to sign off on these things uh, so that they're Islamically validated, right? Does that make sense? It's all about managing things and trying to keep the peace. And these are complex issues, and this is why it's always best for to be done through a collective body and not a single imam. So there's, there's oversight and there's policies and procedures and it can't all be blamed on just one person. So that's actually a longer conversation, uh, but more or less that's it. So whether it's a talaq or a khula, after that's been granted or pronounced, the woman is now in her idda. The idda is the waiting period. What's the purpose of the waiting period? Right. It is to make sure that the rahm, the womb, is empty. 
that there's no child and that she's not pregnant from her now ex-husband. Why is that important? Because if she remarries and it's not clear who the child's father is, this mixes up the ansab, the lineages between different peoples. So different rights are not observed or they're not known and this becomes a huge problem. And we know that one of the maqasid of sharia, one of the objectives of the sacred law of Islam is hifdul nasl, the preservation of family ties. And this is one of the reasons why there's so many ahkam that pertain to preserving family ties and keeping the ties uh, clear, knowing who is who, so that these ties are preserved. So the idda is, it's, it, there's an illa behind it, there's a, a legal rationale and it's to make sure that she's not carrying a child. Now maybe she's absolutely sure that she doesn't have a child. Does that mean she can skip the idda? No. Because even if the rationale is to make sure she's not pregnant, it's still a divine command specifying the duration of the idda, which specifies that it is three quru. Three quru. And quru is either three periods, three menstrual cycles, or three months. There's a difference of opinion about the meaning of quru among the fuqaha. So that idda is going to begin as soon as the divorce occurs. The moment the husband says anti taliq or you're divorced, the idda begins, right? And that will end on the beginning of the third menstrual period that follows. So it's three quru in the, the Madiki madhab, that means three, uh, well I said menstrual cycles, I, sh I should clarify, what I mean by that is purification from the menstrual cycle. Right, not the cycles themselves. So the quru means three periods after, there's a period and then there's the tahara after it, right? So after three purities, uh, then that idda is complete. And it begins with the purity in which the divorce occurred. So remember we said that the sunnah divorce, when is it happening? It's after she's ended her period and purified herself before intercourse. In that window, that purity period is counting towards the three, right? If the woman does not menstruate, you know, maybe she's uh, menopausal, the idda is three months from the date of the divorce, at least according to the Madikiyah. And if she's pregnant, then the idda ends at the period of birth. So um, she shouldn't be divorced when she's pregnant. Like that shouldn't be pronounced. If it is pronounced, it does count, right? And that idda would be ending at the period of birth because she's already pregnant, right? So she delivers and it's done. Now, during the idda period, there are certain things that she cannot do. There are certain things that are prohibited. She cannot remarry during the idda because the purpose is to ensure that the womb is empty and so lineages don't get mixed up. So she's not going to get married before that's done. Number two, she can't accept a marriage proposal during the idda period. However, they say that this does not mean there cannot be hints. So if a person knows that Fulan divorced Fulana and she's in her idda and he has a liking towards her and he wants to marry her, he can't just go up to her and say, hey, you want to get married when this is done? Can't do that. But he can drop hints. And the, the hints are actually quite... Uh, they're quite interesting, right? In the books of fiqh, they give examples of hints. They say things like, the man can go up to this woman in her idda and say, you know, any man with you 
would have, you know, a really priceless gem in his life or something like that, you know. It's just a big hint that he's interested. I see a good man in the future. Right? I see a good man in the future. Yes, I see a good man in your future. Whoever is married to you in the future is a lucky man. Right? These are all hints. Those are not haram because they're not explicit proposals. Right? So it's, it's indirect. Well, yeah, in the fiqh, in, in the Hanafi school, right, the woman who's been married before, she can represent herself, yeah. And, and that often, that's often the rule that we default to. We, we often default to the Hanafi position in North America due to a lot of complexities, especially with converts or people who've been married a couple of times in the family, the parents are deceased, or, you know, you have issues, you know, uh, you know, someone maybe their only male representative is in another country and they're completely, as we say, out to lunch. They're not thinking about Islam at all. They're not even on the deen. So go to that. Yeah, you're right. Yes? Doesn't that have the name that was excluded? So there's an idda for when the woman is a widow and then there's the idda when there's a divorce. These are two different iddas. They're different in duration, and they're different in what she's supposed to do and not do. So you're talking about their idda of bereavement. Their idda of bereavement is when she stays home, she doesn't go and do work, and she doesn't wear uh, you know, elaborate, fancy clothing. And this is a, a mourning period. That idda is what you're talking about. The, marriage, the divorce idda doesn't have any of those things. Yeah. And... If the husband has intercourse with his wife during her iddah with the intention that he is, that she is his wife again, you know, this is raja'ah, that is considered raja'ah, right? It, it counts. So that means he may say, you're divorced. A week later, he realizes, I'm going to take her back. I think we'll work this out. If he goes and says, you know, nice romantic words and they have intercourse, that counts as taking her back. If he had intercourse with her and he still intends to divorce her, meaning he doesn't intend to take her back and just has intercourse with her, then he's sinful for this because it is istighfaf bid-deen. It's making light of the religion, taking it as a joke. But it's not zina because they're still, you know, it's kind of this weird... Dehlis, you know, like an in-between barzakh. I mean, they're married, but they're not really in a sense. So it's not zina, but it's haram and it's sinful because it's making light of the deen. So any intercourse he has has to be accompanied with that niyyah of taking her back. And if he does that, then it's considered taking her back. Now there's one, or there's actually two points here to make about the iddah. When the woman is in idda, because you asked about the bereavement idda, and we're talking about the idda of divorce. So she's not entertaining direct proposals, and she's not remarrying, but there's other things going on during the idda period, responsibilities that have to be maintained. So the man has to maintain his divorced wife during her idda if they consummated the marriage. If they never consummated the marriage, and, and you know, these things sound strange, but they happen. You know, they get married, the walima, right? Everyone's all happy. They go home. It doesn't get consummated. There's a huge fight. And they say, no, I'm going to get out of this. 
That's not consummated. That's a different scenario. But if the marriage was consummated through intercourse, then he has to maintain her financially during that idda period, provided he has the right to take her back. And provided she... Uh, so, as it says here in the slide, if he consummated the marriage and one of the following apply, he has the right to take her back or she's pregnant. During that whole time she's pregnant, and it, that's, that's the whole idda, isn't it? He has to maintain her during her pregnancy, even though they're divorced and she's going through the idda. If he can take her back, if that's a possibility, he has to maintain her during that period. But if she gets divorced, he is not responsible, shara'an, Islamically, for providing maintenance for her if she sought the divorce through a khula'. Once the khula' has been granted, he's not responsible because she sought that, unless she's pregnant. If she sought the khula' and she's pregnant, now you have two things, right? The khula, she, she wouldn't deserve maintenance because of the khula, but she would deserve maintenance because she is carrying the child, and during that period, he would provide for her. If he divorced her three times, either the sunnah way or the bid'ah way, either way, uh, it's an irrevocable divorce, so they're not coming back. There's, there's no maintenance because it's a done deal. She is moving on completely. So the maintenance is given in most situations in, in times where there's that possibility of her coming back, of him taking her back and then reconciling. Likewise, he has no right, or she has no right of maintenance if there's a separation due to harm um, by the husband or if they're separated because one of them left the deen, you know, ridda, right? So these are some scenarios that do happen, although they're rare. And lastly, we look at a couple of scenarios here. I know it's a lot of material here. I wanted to put it all in one class. If feasible, a woman granted khula will move back to her family's home or she'll go to a relative's house to stay or even a shelter or a guest bedroom of another home. That is the ideal because why? Once the khula has been granted, if they ever wanted to get married again, it has to be a new contract. They're done. So if the khula is granted, then ideally she is out. That's what she wants. She wants out. She should be out. But let's say she doesn't have family. Let's say there's no relatives. Let's say there's no other option except being on the streets. In that extreme circumstance, it would be allowed as a temporary measure for her to stay in the husband's home and live as a stranger, provided they're in a separate room and she's observing hijab in front of him. And she is looking to find a place of her own. as a temporary measure, and it's very rare. So, that said, unlike talaq, as we said, he cannot take her back through intercourse. If he grants the khula, he can't just say, okay, I want to take you back. Nope, can't. Once he accepts the offer of khula, they are haram for each other until she goes through their idda, until they do a new contract. Right, so this is how they would do that. Just a new contract, because it's not irrevocable. Yeah. No, not for the khula. Yeah. So, 
this is the distinction between the talaq and the khula. So this is a lot of stuff, I know. It's a lot of material to cover. But I wanted to put it all in one class. And I made the notes uh, hopefully detailed enough for you to go back to if you want to review this. And as I said in the beginning, it's not a romantic topic, but it's something necessary because it concerns the rights of other people and making sure that we know what to do. Because, as I said, around 80% of the problems you get are from the people have is because they're just not doing things properly. You know, they want an Islamic solution to doing something un-Islamic, a problem caused by not living Islam or not knowing how to do things the right way. If a person knows how to do things the right way, even in difficult situations like divorce, they can do it in a way that's pleasing to Allah Ta'ala and that creates the least amount of damage and the, the best chance of uh, reconciliation and going their separate ways in a way that is best. Wallahu wa rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions like random? If the divorce is finalized, can they ask for you know, all the gifts that they had exchanged during when they were married? Can they ask those gifts to be returned? Well, I saw someone shaking their head. That was you. Fihi um, tafsil, right? There's some details here. So the question, the question was, if they get divorced, do they have to return to each other the different gifts they gave each other? Well, the simple answer is no. So you were right to shake your head. The simple answer is no. It, once you receive a gift, you have tamlik. You, know, you, you, you own that thing, right? We don't have this concept in Islamic law of, oh, we're getting divorced, everything is 50-50, and like the cartoon, you know, we're getting the saw and sawing the car in half and sawing the house in half and everything, every single thing that we shared. It's not quite like that. What is yours is yours. What's hers is hers. However, I said there's some detail here because there are cases where it would be either advisable or even required to recomp recompensate the wife uh, materially, financially uh, but that would be in circumstances where she was doing services in lieu of income so it was almost like an employee kind of relationship where she was making doing things that made him money or made the business profitable in which case it becomes like a business partner, a sharik so some of that profit would need to go to her but navigating that and figuring it out would be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But, you know, oh, this, you know, I don't know, think of a gift. What would be a gift that the husband receives? Wedding ring. Wedding ring, okay. Do you have to give the wedding ring back? It's yours. You have to give it back. Uh, because the Prophet ﷺ says, The person who uh, takes back the gift they gave is like a dog going back to its vomit, right? So you don't have to give a gift back, you ha it's yours. Uh, would you want to keep it? I mean, I could think of a person who, if they have a nice silver wedding ring and they're getting divorced, maybe they would go to the pawn shop or something, I don't know. I mean, I want to keep that, but it's yours. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, the Sunni or Shia. Oh, the Sunni or Shia. The marriage is one, 
So why mention so many different Furqan and Shi'i? Uh, that was a joke. Yeah. So there is, there, I don't mean there is a Sunni and a Shi'i divorce. We say that the Fuqaha describe divorce as uh, being a divorce done according to the guidelines of the Sunnah, or it is a divorce that is against the guidelines of the Sunnah. If it's the, according to the guidelines, it is called a talaq sunni, meaning it is according to Sunnah. If it's not according to the Sunnah, they call it talaq bid'i, meaning it's done in a way that is blameworthy, even though in both cases they take effect. So, yeah, you can go back to the slides, whoever's asking that question. Because the, the, the word Sunni here, the, the, the ya here is a nisbah, right, in, uh, an ascription. And here the, the ascription, the nisbah, is to the manner in which the divorce is carried out. Not the group carrying it out and how they do it differently from others. So... The bid'i is the ascribed to the bid'a, and the bid'a means something that is, it has a religious flavor because talaq is something from the deen, but it is done in a way that is contradictory to the guidance of the Prophet That's why it's called bid'i, and bid'a doesn't just mean innovation, it means blameworthy innovation here. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so leaving the prayer and you know, the fast and all of those things listed, how come that's not listed for the men as well? Wouldn't that be a harm against actually the whole family? It is. And, and she would have recourse to the Qadi for those things. Okay. Yeah. No, absolutely. She, I mean, if that was happening, she would, she would be able to uh, take that up to the court. The, the essential difference is that because talaq, Issuing the talaq is the prerogative of the man and not the woman. They, may, they list these distinctions out. So if that is coming from the man, she can't say, I divorce you, just like that, arbitrarily, right? You, or unilaterally. She has to go to the qadi or someone representing or a group representing, acting like a qadi. Even if she had those complaints, yeah, for sure. If, if, if he betrayed her financially, if you look at that list, right? Say he uses her money, she has a right. If he's neglecting purification in prayer and fasting and the, the, the fara'id and wajibat, she would have a recourse to complain and take it to the qadi. Uh, but leaving the home without her permission? No, because that's not required. Um, refusing sexual access? That's in the list for the woman. It's also for the man. Locking her out of the house? Yes. Because that's her right, right? Remember we said the marriage is that the, the, the transfer of, of, of maintenance from the, the wali, the father, to the husband. That includes the nafaqa, the housing, shelter, clothing, and so on. So if he's locking her out of the house, not letting her in, of course she has a recourse. Because that's her right, the right to second, the right to have a place to live. So the list is like this because of the nature of uh, who issues the talaq and who doesn't. But otherwise, you're right. She would have the right to go to the qadi for uh, most of these things if she needed to. And the wife of Qais mentioned that, right? Because of, not because of his religiosity. Right. That word was used. Yeah, and he wasn't, 
you know, he wasn't uh, violating her rights either. Right. It was just there's no there's no there's no there's just no chemistry, and and she didn't want to be in that marriage without the chemistry and become so resentful that she felt she would be ungrateful. So she sought to be released so that that wouldn't be prolonged. Yeah. Safe to assume, like an imam in the masjid X, for example, with a specific amount of knowledge, is should play a role as the qadi in, in the marriage uh, counseling. Is that like in the United, in the United North America? Uh, yes, but I think it should be done as a group effort. Um, be, and the reason why is that that eliminates the possibility of bias, that creates checks and balances, it gets other perspectives. Uh, different ways of seeing things or interpreting things. It's always better when done collectively. It also takes away a lot of the pressure from the imams. Because if it's a collective decision, who are you going to blame? Well, you could blame all of them, but, you know. So you mean like family members, like When you say collective effort. When I say collective, I mean you have, let's say, in, in the city of Pittsburgh. It's something that we actually are working on, but it it's actually takes a lot of effort to get it off the ground. Uh, five or six imams working on a collective uh, document, uh, a basic policy for how we adjudicate and hear the cases, how we verify, how we uh, try reconciliation, and what are the steps that we take before we issue a a, a, a a separation. So if it's a collective body and the person has a complaint, let's say the woman, the guy won't divorce her, won't give her a khula, he's denying her so many rights, she can't get out. She goes not to one person, but she goes to this body. She presents her case and there's a procedure for investigating that and verifying. They meet with her, they meet with him separately and together and they check things out, they contact other people uh, and then once they do all the fact finding according to this procedure and the guidance of Sharia, they issue a ruling he, the, the husband may not like it, right? Maybe he doesn't want to give the talaq or the khula and he's not even satisfied with what they said but it takes effect in Sharia terms so she is at least, she can rest easy that she has done what she has to do and in the sight of Allah she is separated from that man and she can move on after her idda. And But it's always better for that to happen after, if possible, after the divorce in the civil court because you have other complexities. Another complexity is the microscope sometimes put on to the Muslim community with regard to us adjudicating and making decisions on matters affecting marriages and divorces. Are we setting up a, a two-tier system here where we're a fifth column or it's a two-tier system, we're operating, running our own Sharia courts, right? That, you know, that was a big thing in the early 2000s and mid-2000s. It's less so now, but y you have to be careful, yeah. When the man and declares the law, it happens anywhere. Yeah. You don't have to go to the court to get a paper. No. So how is it playing out with Kula but not with the Talaq? Well, we're talking about Islamically. No, I'm just on the same page. Yeah. In one case you are saying Kula, you are waiting until you get... 
Well, when I say khula here, what I mean is the, the imam, uh, she's requesting it and not getting it, and then he's ruling in her favor to, to, to do that. So it's kind of like, it goes from khula to this tataliq, you know, forced, coerced kind of divorce. So this is basically when he's not, he's not agreeing to it, right? But that also puts that woman in suspended situation until she gets the divorce. You mean in the civil court? No, in general, I'm just saying I've seen so many cases like mm -hmm. these where the women are in suspended state because the husband is not giving talaq and not giving agreeing to khula either. So she has no recourse. Her only recourse then is to go to a body of imams or an imam. And the imams are not taking action either. Uh, it, they do. No, I'm just saying it, it happens. Saying not all imams. You're right. Not all imams will do it. But there are, I mean, there's a few here who do it, right? And there's cases, and some of the imams, they refer, they, they meet and talk about certain cases jointly when they're a little more complicated. And they may give a unilateral decision, but it's sometimes in consultation with the others too. So you need a system in place that is transparent, that takes the burden off of one imam. So that if it's a collective decision, it's kind of, recognized as enforceable according to standards of sharia even if he's not agreeing to it or if he's upset about it and I mean, of course that assumes that it's done properly right we don't just grant these things willy-nilly there are some places in in the uk where you can just pay 200 pounds and just get any piece of paper you want granting this the woman the divorce it's just a joke right you have those things that get abused too you know So the, so the word used is quru in the Qur'an. The waiting period is three quru. So the quru or the qar is a period of purification. So not the period of minces. So let's say she was on her period. She purified herself. Now she is tahira. Right? He says you're divorced. That period of purification that she's in, when he utters it, counts as the first one. She now goes to the second period, and then she purifies herself. That is the second one. Okay. And then she goes to the next period, purifies herself, and that's the third qara. So that could be two months. It's three. It's three. Like, I mean, well, there's a difference of opinion, because some of the ulama interpreted that word, uh, the word quru as uh, months, so they would say three months. Others say it is periods of purification. The Madaki view is periods of purification. So, yeah, theoretically, you know, depending on the time between her purification and him uttering it, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. Okay. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumallahu khairan. So next week, inshallah, uh, rights of children and parents. <laughs>